Is it ever right for a Christian to retaliate or to go to war? The Scottish Covenanters back in the killing times of the 17th century were living under extreme duress. They were hounded from their homes. They were forced to worship in fields and hilltops. They were harassed and arrested. They were wrongfully imprisoned. They were tried on trumped-up charges. They were cruelly tortured and executed. Under the oppression of the Stuart dynasty, they banded together into what we might call militias, and they waged war openly against their enemies. In fierce battles at Rullion Green and Ayr's Moss, Bothwell Bridge, many other battlegrounds. But an open battle is different from a guerrilla-style attack by a group of renegades on a man travelling with his young daughter, no matter who the man is, isn't it? Even if the man is a wicked opponent of freedom and truth and a persecutor of Christians. So in this podcast, we're going to remember and consider the murder of Archbishop James Sharp at Ceres in Fife. We'll try to set the context. In other words, illustrate why the Covenanters were so aroused against this man and his ilk that they would seek his life. And we'll ask whether such an attack can ever be right or justified and explore some ethical parameters for justly pursuing a conflict if such exists at all. I'm Bob McAvoy and you're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast. The town of Ceres and Fife in Scotland was and is an important historical site, even if its primary notoriety is an act of foul murder. It prompts me to ask whether it is right, ever right for Christians to take up arms to defend themselves, even under the most extreme provocation. And the Covenanters certainly did take up arms. As we've already noted, they organised themselves into militias, They fought long and bloody battles against the government. The persecution of the Covenanters in Scotland in the 17th century was severe in the extreme. But before we can go any further, we need to remember the words of Paul in Romans 13 and verse 1, where he says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Be under no illusions. The ruling authorities in Paul's days were were no angels. Paul lived under the crushing heel of the Roman Empire and they were utterly ruthless. As the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross well illustrates, they knew how to terrorise their subjects into compliance and they did it with a cruel and ferocious brutality. When we say with the Apostles' Creed that Jesus, God's sinless Son, suffered under Pontius Pilate, we can rarely appreciate the extent of that awful suffering. The Romans were cruel. Yet Paul tells us that as Christians, we are to be subject to the higher powers, to the ruling authorities, because God in his providence has placed them there. 
Romans 13 and 2, says, Whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now those are strong words. The government's men who ruled in Scotland in the 17th century were cruel too. Would Paul not expect the covenanters to be in subjection to them, as he expected the Christians of his day to be in subjection to the cruel tyranny of Rome? Of course, Paul doesn't just leave his teaching in Romans at that point. He goes on from that to tell us that the authorities also have a grave responsibility. In Romans 13, verse 3 to 4, he writes, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So the one who governs over us have a God-given responsibility to do what is right, to reward good behaviour and to punish evildoers. But what if the government are doing just exactly the opposite to that? Ethically, what happens when the government attacks the church, as it did in Scotland, and fails in its side of that equation? What happens when the government oppresses the church, as it did with the Presbyterians in Scotland? There is, of course, a biblical precedent for this. It's found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, where the Jewish authorities ordered the apostles to cease and desist from preaching about Jesus. Take time and read Acts 5, verse 24 to verse 29. The key here seems to be that the governing authorities were hindering and prohibiting the preaching of the gospel. Peter's answer in this passage is clear. In these circumstances, and in very few others, our first duty is to obey God, not men. And that was the case with the Covenanters in Scotland back in the 17th century. They rose up against the Stuart kings, the men who were using the doctrine of the divine right of kings to enforce Anglican conformity and popish ritual over and above the clear teaching of God's word. So on the one hand, we have the clear injunctions of Scripture that we are to obey those in authority, to live peaceably with all men as far as is possible, that we are to turn the other cheek, that we are to pray and bless our enemies. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. On the other hand, there is the concept of what we call the just war. The Christian theory of the just war began as a moral argument around the time of Augustine of Hippo, and it's still used by many Christians today as a guide to whether or not a war can be justified. War may be needed. For example, in the case of a country that has been invaded by an enemy or an occupying force. And the only way to restore democracy and justice may actually be to wage war. So the use of force may be right, even if it's not good. Of course, as we know, not all those who fought alongside the Covenanters in the various battles of that century were Christians in the sense that we would understand biblical Christianity. 
alongside the many deeply committed Presbyterian Christians who attended the conventicles and heard the sermons of the covenanting ministers were others who simply were nationalistic Scots, who didn't want to be told what to do in any way by the English establishment. But many covenanting Christians did take up arms against the king's forces and those who would support them. So there are some very basic principles that those who accept the just war theory must consider. For example, to be just, a legitimate war must only be defensive. Christians must never be aggressive. Christians must never initiate conflict. Also, the intention of the war must be to secure peace for everyone involved. Revenge or economic gain or territorial or political advancement should never be considered as just causes for war. Again, a war must always be the last resort. We should only go to war after every other avenue has been explored, after negotiations have finally failed, after every compromise has been exhausted. The objective of such a war needs to be clearly stated, and there should be no mission creep. And finally, the force used should not be disproportionate, just enough to secure peace. So, now that we've learned all that, we can look at the murder by a group of covenanters of Archbishop James Sharp. And we can ask the question, was it right for men who are claiming to be Christians, who are rallying under the blue banner, who are proclaiming Christ's crown and covenant to murder a man? in cold blood, in revenge, even a despicable, wicked man like Sharp. It wasn't a good thing to do, but was it just? Was it defensive? Was it intended to bring about a betterment? Was it to promote peace? Had every other avenue been exhausted? Was the force used proportionate, or did they go too far? Or was it less unpremeditated than some historians might paint it. Certainly the appearance of Sharp on that mirror series that night was unexpected. Sharp was supposed to be en route to London to obtain the royal assent for a bill he was promoting and only at the last minute decided on a detour to St Andrews. Yet there is some evidence that already at that point some covenanters were planning to mount a rebellion, were planning to establish a Scottish Republic. Certainly, the next decade was marked by rebellions and bloody battles. Why were those covenanters out in the mirrors that night? And why were they armed? They had, of course, intended to dispatch one William Carmichael, the sheriff deputy, and to finally stop him in his mischief. But was that just a local insurrection or was it part of a larger planned uprising? So now to enable us to adequately assess the actions of the Covenanters in this event, let's first try to get a clear picture of the provocation they were facing. I want to take a short look first, before we look at Sharp any further, I want to take a short look at two important figures in the government side. People who were enemies of the gospel and enemies of the Covenanting cause. One Tom DeYell and a man called John Graham of Claverhouse just to get some idea into our heads of why these men in the ambushed series were so outraged and angry with their rulers and oppressors.
the government forces at the Battle of Rullion Green in 1666 had been under the command of one Tom D.L. Following the battle and the subsequent executions of Covenanter prisoners, D.L. had moved his headquarters over to Kilmarnock in Ayrshire, where he regarded every single one of the locals as a potential rebel and mistreated them accordingly. D.L. had ordered summary executions of men, women and children. Covenanters were jailed in an old jail which once stood in King Street in Kilmarnock. At one time there were so many in one cell that they had to stand upright. Sanitary conditions were deliberately deplorable and many fell sick. One man was ill and others pleaded with the guards to have him removed from the cell. D.L. agreed, but only in condition that when he died he would be returned, put back in the cell. He did die shortly after and he was indeed returned to the jail, where his body lay rotting outside the prison for some time before D.L. would allow it to be buried. Many others were similarly treated, and even worse, during the time when D.L. was in Ayrshire. John Graham, who earned the nickname Bloody Clavers, was one of the most notorious persecutors of the Covenanters. He was born near Dundee in 1648, and he was created Viscount Dundee in 1688. Claverhouse served as an officer in the French and Dutch armies before returning to take up a commission in Scotland, a commission that had a very simple and direct command. He was given an independent troop of cavalry, and his commission was to root out and destroy the Covenanders. He did it with enthusiasm killed many of his victims with his own hands. One of the most infamous examples of his work was the martyrdom of John Brown of Priest Hill. John Brown of Priest Hill was known as the Christian Carrier. And he was a humble peasant crofter, a man whose life was taken by Claverhouse at his own farm and in front of his wife and his children. Brown lived at Priest Hill. It was a small croft along the Straven Road, just north of Muirkirk. Although the farmhouse itself is long gone, a small monument marks the site where the murder took place, about two and a half miles walk from the public road. The farm was never prosperous. Brown would have owned little more than a cow and a few sheep, and it was perhaps for that reason that he also acted as a carrier. Being a fit man, he was able to take parcels by pack horse to inaccessible areas of the countryside. He was not a minister. He was not even a preacher. In fact, he had a speech impediment, which would have made such a calling impossible. However, Brown did run a Bible class for young boys at his home. By summer he taught his students out in the sheepfold and by winter in the barn. And many illegal covenanting services would have been held at Priest Hill. And many of the hill men lodged there from time to time. It's recorded that when he married his second wife, Isabel Weir, the marriage was solemnised at his own home by Alexander Peden, who was a close friend. Following the ceremony, Peden warned Isabel Brown that she would not enjoy her husband's company for very long. 
and that she should always keep fresh linen close to hand for to wrap his body. In 1680, Brown was reported for not attending the curate's services in the parish of Sorn, where he was living at the time. The session minutes of the time record that Brown had stated most clearly that he regarded the minister of Sorn as one of those who kept company with indulged ministers, that the minister paid tribute to the government, and that the true messenger of Jesus Christ, Richard Cameron, was lying under the mirrors at Hers Moss. On the 1st of May, 1685, the Reverend Sandy Peden stayed the night with the Browns, and on leaving early the next morning, turned to Isabel Brown and said, Poor woman, a fearful morning, a dark misty morning. After morning prayers, Brown and his nephew John Browning left the home to go to cut peat in the hills, and shortly after leaving the house, found themselves surrounded by troops, under the command of John Graham of Claverhouse. Brown was questioned as to why he did not attend the services of the curates and why so many covenanters stayed at his house. Brown was asked to swear the oath of allegiance, which of course he refused. It is recorded that when Brown was answering Claverhouse, his stammer left him, so much so that Clavers asked his lieutenant whether Brown had ever preached. The lieutenant testified that he had not. Janet Brown, John's young daughter, had witnessed the arrest, and she had gone to fetch Isabel. In front of Brown's wife, daughter and baby son, Claverhouse ordered the crofter to go to his prayers. Much to Claver's annoyance, the prayer continued for some time, and he shouted at Brown that he had given time to pray and not to preach. Brown's reply was that Clavers would not know the difference. So Cleverhouse ordered his troops to shoot Brown. They refused, and having run out of patience with the situation, Clavers himself drew his pistol and shot the Covenanter dead. Isabel went up to her dead husband and cradled his head in her lap. Clavers asked her, Well, what do you think of your husband now? She replied, I a thought muckle but now more than ever. Clavers threatened to put her beside her husband, and she challenged him as to how he would answer before God for his day's work. Clavers answered with characteristic arrogance, To man I am answerable, as for God I will take him into my own hand. Although later he confessed they had suffered nightmares because of the final words of John Brown. Sandy Payton was about ten miles away when this murder happened. He was with a Christian family named Muirhead, and they were worshipping in prayer, when Peden cried to the Lord, Lord, when wilt thou avenge Brown's blood? John Muirhead asked Peden what he meant. Peden replied, I mean that Claverhouse has been at Priest Hill, and has cruelly murdered John Brown. His corpse is lying at the end of the house, his poor wife sitting by it, with not a soul to speak comfortably to her. After all, Peden was the so-called prophet of the covenant. Isabel did indeed sit with her dead husband, until found in that position by Jean Brown, a widow whose own husband and two sons had suffered a similar fate. So Claverhouse carried on his bloody work throughout Galloway and Ayrshire, 
right up until 1685 when he moved his headquarters to Selkirk. In 1689, Claverhouse raised an army of Highlanders to fight on behalf of James II, and a battle ensued at Killycrankie, where he succeeded in winning despite the odds of the battle being against him. However, in the course of the battle, Claverhouse himself was mortally wounded, and he died shortly after. He's buried at Old Blair Church, near Blairathal. So now we can return to our story of that murder at series. And it was in that atmosphere of excessively unjust laws and sore persecution that the murder of Archbishop James Sharp occurred. The year was 1679 and the date was the 3rd of May. Sharp had previously been a Presbyterian minister stationed at Greal Parish in Fife. He actually had subscribed to the Covenant. And so much trusted was he that he was appointed to represent and defend the interests of the Scottish Church in London at the time of the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. While he was there, he was offered his archbishopric in return for his collaboration with the leader of the English army during their decade of Cromwellian rule, one General Monk. In 1998, I interviewed the then curator of the Fife Folk Museum in series in connection with the murder of Sharp. She was convinced at that time that Sharp's conversion to episcopacy was a result of pressure being brought to bear upon him and that he did not at first enjoy his new role at all. Secretly, Sharp had worked to re-establish the prelacy and as an archbishop he took severe measures to abolish Presbyterianism. One of the new archbishop's first actions was to appoint a new sheriff deputy for Fife, one William Carmichael, whose name I've already mentioned. Carmichael's immediate task was to track down any who failed to attend services preached by curates and bring them to the gallows. Carmichael was a waster, a drunkard, a squanderer of money. He had previously spent his family's wealth just before his appointment, and with great relish he imposed heavy fines on the Covenanters, tortured thousands of people, including women and children. And Sharp at this time had drafted a new law. It was that law that he was taking to London on the night of his murder. He'd brought it to the stage where royal consent was needed for the bill to enter the statute books. This law decreed that any person found attending a covenanting conventicle and open-air meeting could be instantly put to death without trial by the lowest of common soldiers. It was a cruel law, a law that removed the need for a fair trial simply for attending worship. And with the potential for serious abuse, you can see that it was highly provocative. The Archbishop had actually been warned on several occasions that his anti-Presbyterian fervour would eventually bring about his death. He had suffered one failed assassination attempt already, and although the perpetrator was a man of somewhat limited intelligence, Sharp pursued him legally until he was hanged. Even though 
the pursuit of the man meant that several notable noblemen had to actually bear false witness against him. On one occasion, Sharp was openly warned by a member of his own household staff of a threat from a covenanting preacher following a field meeting. On Friday the 2nd of May, Sharp left Edinburgh to travel north to St Andrews before proceeding on south to London to ask the King to sign his anti-Presbyterian legislation. Accompanied by his eldest daughter Isabel, he paused overnight at Kenaway before travelling on to Ceres, where he stopped to rest at the manse, occupied as it was by an Episcopalian curate. Meanwhile, a group of twelve Covenanters had been gathering on the Fife Shermures. Among them were David Haxton, John Burley Balfour, James Russell, William Daniel, George Fleming, Andrew and Alexander Henderson, James, Andrew and George Balfour, Thomas Ness, Andrew Gillen. They gathered with the purpose of inflicting some harm upon that William Carmichael, the sheriff deputy, who had been relentlessly persecuting the Covenanters. Carmichael had been warned that certain men were making inquiries about him and he was staying well indoors that day. The Covenanters up on the moor, three of whose number had already left for home, had waited long enough, and they were about to go home themselves when a farm boy passed by, giving them the news that Archbishop Sharp himself was coming along the road. Bertie Balfour decided that God himself had delivered the Archbishop into their hands, and he determined to end once and for all that prelate's reign of terror. In the debate that followed, there were elements of consideration of the just war theory. Haxton and a few of the other conspirators actually refused to lead the assault. Haxton refused on the grounds that there was a personal matter between himself and Sharp, and therefore he could not take part in any attack on the man, lest it be seen as revenge, rather than as a righteous act of justice. A very clear understanding of the ethics of war. Balfour, though, had no such scruples. He jumped on his horse and shouted, Gentlemen, follow me. And as the Archbishop's carriage reached the rising ground of Magus Moor, the men on horseback became visible. The Archbishop urged the driver to outrun them, but such a course was impossible. The carriage was stopped and the servants detained. Sharp refused to alight from the carriage, and the Covenanters tried to reach into the carriage with knives to stab him. Shots were fired, but Sharp was still alive, a fact brought to the attacker's notice by Sharp's distraught daughter, who by this time was hysterical and crying out, there still is life. Sharp was then dragged from the carriage. His attackers implored him to make his peace with God, but instead Sharp pleaded for his life. Haxton, meanwhile, sat upon his horse, watching the events unfold. Sharp turned and saw him, and cried out to him as a gentleman to spare his life, whereupon his own life would be spared in return. Axton's reply was simple, I shall lay no hand upon you. Frustrated by Sharp's refusal to pray, and his cowardly pleas for mercy, the matter eventually wearied Bertie Balfour, and he determined to end the affair. The attackers fired simultaneously, and still Sharp lived. 
They drew their swords, and as Sharp saw the blades glinting in the sun, he lapsed into sheer despair and terror. His daughter tried to stand between him and the attackers, and Haxton could remain silent no more. He pleaded with his friends to spare those grey hairs, but he was too late. The swords were already drawn. The blows were soon struck. Death swiftly followed. And James Russell turned to the Archbishop's servants and said, Go, go and take up your priest. sorry affair has cast a blight on the covenanting cause. Yet Sharp was without doubt a despicable villain. His presence was a menace to Christianity. And there were mitigating circumstances. The act of murder was unpremeditated. It was committed by people who only set out to scare someone. Responsible leaders among the covenanters condemned the act completely and utterly. The leader of the attacking band was John Balfour, an irreligious man who had for many years been refused communion at his local church. A man who was a bigoted fanatic whose godlessness erupted in this foul deed. But what then of Haxton? Did his standing back from this crime excuse him from guilt by association? Was he not as guilty as the other murderers that day? Sharp's lifeless body was taken to St Andrews, where messengers were dispatched to Edinburgh to report the incident. The council decreed that the men involved were assassinates, and the landowners of Fife were commanded to bring all of their servants, tenants and cotters along to Cooper, Dunfermline, Kirkcaldy or St Andrews for questioning. Rewards were offered for information, leading to the capture of the men responsible, and an amnesty was proclaimed for any of the Covenanters who would turn crown witness and reveal the names of the others. Still, no one divulged the names. No one was arrested for the murder, although many of those involved were later executed for continuing their covenanting activities. Five Covenanters who'd been arrested at the Battle of Bothwell Brig were hanged on Magus Moor as an act of retaliation. The fate of David Haxton requires some additional examination. We first see David Haxton at the murder of Sharp. Haxton, along with his fellow Covenanters, had been out on the mirror that night, and he'd been present at the scene of the crime, even though not actually involved in the deed, but he was nevertheless blamed by the government and falsely accused of being the ringleader. Haxton had fought at many of the battles where Covenanters faced the government forces. 
After the defeat at Moss, bleeding severely from head wounds and almost dead, he was taken to Edinburgh. Along with others, he was marched barefoot to Lanark, where he was interrogated by D.L., who threatened to roast him alive if he did not reveal the name of others. Axton said nothing, and D.L., realising that the man would quickly die of torture and not willing to deprive the state of the pleasure of an execution, ordered that the Covenanter should be taken on to Edinburgh. Along with others who had been captured at Ayr's Moss, Haxton was brought to the capital on a bareback horse, sitting, facing the tail, with his feet tied underneath. In the prison, Haxton wrote to friends regarding his condition and remained faithful to God, despite being in terrible pain. He appeared before the court twice and was sentenced to die. The sentence was a fearful one. I don't want to go into the details of his execution here on the CD or on the podcast because I don't know who's listening. But if you want to read the details, you can go to the study guide and you can get some more information there. After his death, the indignity was not over. Haxton's head was severed and put in display in the netherby, while the rest of his body was quartered and displayed in towns right throughout the region as a warning to others. It was a wicked and a bloody retribution for Sharp's death, for which Haxton was blamed. What do you think? Was that group of renegade covenanters in any way justified in murdering Archbishop Sharp, a wicked man, in front of his own young daughter? When you're thinking about it, take into account the extreme provocation. Was there a just cause? The reality in those days was that there were no independent courts before which the covenanters could plead their case. Ultimately, the government of the land lay in the hands of a king who was no friend of these Presbyterian Christians. But was the bloody and violent execution justly carried out? And there I think not. And was there a just outcome? This illegal and unsanctioned execution seems to have achieved nothing for the covenanting cause for a decade of horrendous persecution followed. It was just a wicked act of revenge, was it not? So what do you think? These are ethical issues. Were the Covenanters right and justified in what they did that night? You be the judge. (laughs) 